This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. We're here today in Santa Barbara, California for the 2017 Goldman Sachs Builders and Innovators Summit. Every year we bring together founders and CEOs of some of the most dynamic companies in the world, and we're thrilled today, right now, to have a couple of those folks with us. Eric Ryan and Adam Lowry are the co-founders of Method Home, and as if that weren't enough, Eric is also the founder of Ollie Nutrition, and Adam is the founder of Ripple Foods. And last but not least, we're also joined by Greg Lemkow, the co-head of Goldman Sachs Investment Bank. Thanks to all of you for making the time. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us, yeah. Greg, set the table for us. Why are we here today, and why do we do this here at Goldman Sachs? Sure, Jake. Uh, So Builders and Innovators is a gathering of the 100 most intriguing entrepreneurs. So it's founders of companies, of nonprofits. There's neuroscientists, there's futurists, and it's really a great opportunity for all these folks to interact, exchange ideas, share best practices, share challenges. And from a Goldman Sachs perspective, it gives us the opportunity to meet fascinating entrepreneurs early in the development of their companies and these people who are creating jobs and creating the next generation of great companies. And, And so why are we here? Yeah. <laughs> we heard you guys are great at podcasting. <laughs> like and, and, and there's two knuckleheads here. <laughs> so, Eric, Adam, you guys were friends in childhood. We were. Uh, yeah. It's an off and on relationship. You knew each other. Um, and uh, you somehow decided to start a business together later on in life. That Which sounds like rule great. Rule number one, right? Like, never start a business with a friend. Right. So the company you started, Method, decided to take on cleaning products, which seems not all that easy given the size and history of many of the companies in that space. What did you see about the existing market at that time that made you think Method could gain traction? Well, we were uh, roommates in San Francisco in arguably the dirtiest flat in San Francisco with five other guys. So this is not the Martha Stewart story by any means. It's an ironic place for a cleaning products company to be born. (laughs) Although necessary. I describe our apartment as exactly as clean as you would expect five bachelors in their early 20s living together to be. It was exactly that clean. So who came up with the idea? Well, we were both from Michigan, and uh, we were back visiting family in 1999, and we were uh, driving up to do a ski trip. And originally, I was doing some work in advertising and starting to look at the category, and my nickname was Marvin, so it was too embarrassing to tell anybody that I would even think about the cleaning products category. Messy Marvin. <laughs> he left out the, the important part. And Adam is a close enough friend, I felt like I could say something without him totally laughing at me, which of course he did. But we uh, started talking about the opportunity, and Adam's like, I have a degree in chemical engineering. I'm like, that would be so useful. <laughs> so we spent the whole weekend up in Michigan actually brainstorming what method could be. So what did you see about the marketplace that gave you a sense that there was an opportunity there? Yeah, there was just a huge lack of innovation in this space. I mean, Eric and I, had, from early on, kind of had this approach that there weren't categories that were necessarily uninteresting. It was just that nobody had really thought of them and done something interesting in those categories. And at the time, you know, this is 20 years ago, you look at the cleaning segment and pretty much everything was super ugly and super toxic. And it didn't really need to be. And as we started putting our heads together, as often founder duos do, and you realize that he knows something that I don't and vice versa, we just realized that that didn't need to be the case. They didn't need to be ugly and they didn't need to be toxic. You could create something that was a lot better and it would have a lot of health benefits for people and so on. And it could be a really big business opportunity because that's kind of the way that consumer trends were going. I could see the natural piece of it, but why design? What made you think that people would care what the product looked like? I mean, we started looking at it and kind of our thesis around starting a business is like you find a big, tired category and you figure out what's the cultural shift that was missed. 
And there was this huge cultural shift back in around 2000 uh, around lifestyling of the home. And nobody was thinking about these products as an accessory of your home. You know, you hit it underneath the sink, out of sight, out of mind. And we wanted something that almost behaved more like personal care, that was beautiful enough you could leave it on your counter, that would smell great. You look at a dish soap more than you actually use it. So we started thinking a lot about that emotional connection to your home. And then it turns out, like, cleaning, as Adam said, is, like, it's a pretty dirty industry. You, like, pollute when you clean, use poison to make your home healthier. And we looked up the number of childhood poisonings that occurred every year from common household products. And we're like, we'll leave a legacy of harm unless we took a different approach, which is what we did. Yeah, and from my perspective, you know, my work before starting Method with Eric, I was very much into the hard sciences. I have a degree in chemical engineering. I was a climate scientist doing climate science that was supposed to lead Super to Super sexy. Yeah, <laughs> supposed to lead to policy change. By four or five years of doing that, I was so frustrated of trying to you know, make change. And so I really wanted to go back to business, use business to create impact, which of course is a really mainstream idea now. But it seemed really silly to me to make a green product only for green people because there aren't that many green people. There still aren't. And that's a motivation for some, but it's a secondary motivation for a lot of other people. And so actually what you need to do is you need to turn the whole model on its head. And what you have to do is we as the designers of the products, right, as the creators of the products need to put that onus on ourselves to make them inherently more healthy, inherently more sustainable, and inherently better performing. And then just Get people to buy the product because it's awesome, first and foremost. And then all those things kind of come with it, and they're built in. And that actually, I think, ends up being one of the biggest things that's helped Method be successful is that what it did is it brought a product that was more sustainable or green or whatever label you want to put on it to a mainstream audience. And everybody else had tried to pull the mainstream audience towards green. They don't want to do that. They don't want ugly and brown and smells bad and you know, it doesn't work. We just turned that model on its head, and that was kind of the big breakthrough, I think, for the growth of the brand in the mainstream market. So Method was one of the first companies to be certified as a B Corp, which means obviously you meet certain environmental and social standards. A little more common today, still not super common, but more common today than it was then. Why did you decide to do that? Yeah, that was Adam. That was really because I think we need to redefine success in business. If you look at some of the problems in our society today... I think that we need to redefine business so that there's more shared prosperity. It's a principle that we employed at Method with employee ownership and wealth creation opportunities. And if you look forward to the way that our society is going, that's a problem that we really have got to fix. And as business leaders, I think that we need to engineer our businesses in a way that enables that. And without getting into the technical detail, there's a lot about the corporate form that often forces corporations to do things that really aren't in the best interest of society and, and I believe ultimately aren't in the best interest of the corporation itself. I really believe strongly that we kind of need a new legal framework to help businesses like ours, like Method, like Ollie, like Ripple, to operate in a way where we can create more shared prosperity through the success of the business. Greg, you work with a lot of different kinds of companies. Are you seeing more and more of them really put sustainability at the heart of their actual business practice, or is it more of just something they feel like they have to do? It's been an interesting evolution, in particular the past handful of years. I'd say the big companies who've talked about sustainability 
it's been a nice to have and a nice to do. And th- those that have done it best have largely done it because they had a noble-minded CEO who thought it was the right thing to do and embedded it in the culture of the company. It's actually now evolved where it's becoming not a must-do, but more of a need-to-do. And I think it's part of this millennial generation that comes up. People want to work at companies they can be proud of. They want to use products they can be proud of they say they use. They want to be partners with companies they can be proud of. And all the things that Adam just talked through are more and more relevant. So if you want to attract the right partners and the best employees, you need to do things that are achieving different objectives than just driving pure shareholder value or pure earnings per share. And it's a slow evolution. I'd say there's a handful of companies at the leading edge. More and more people are thinking about it. But I think we're slowly seeing companies evolve how they think about what's important to them and what's important to try to attract and retain talent. It's a real shift from the what to the why. And it's also driven a lot by social media and just a a desire for transparency around these companies. And you're right, like we originally did it because it was the right thing to do. It's actually a terrible business plan at the time. Consumers weren't demanding it. They weren't demanding it. You know, Green Natural was a, a pimple on the industry at the time. So... We did it because it was the right thing, but you're right. It's completely shifted now where I think it is becoming the price of entry. And I've always believed that this notion that doing right by environment is bad for business is a complete false premise. And actually, the, the reverse is actually true. That proved itself out with method, not just because we got greenies, right? But literally, when we got bought, the deal price was higher because of the things that we had done considerably than if we had not done those things. So like proof in the pudding. And that mindset is really changing. And I think that's what's changing in business and in society in general right now. Look at the energy sector. There are more jobs in the solar industry in the United States than oil, gas, and coal combined. That's just a fact. And solar doesn't produce nearly as much energy. If you want to create jobs in the energy sector, go renewable. Even in Texas, when they're installing new kilowatts, they're doing it with wind and solar. This is just the market starting to realize that it's not a good business model to externalize all of these environmental costs or healthcare costs to society. Ultimately, it catches up with you. It'll be fascinating to see how it evolves and what forces companies to evolve, because for the past number of decades, the mantra for a public company in the U.S. has been shareholder value first. And we've all been parts of discussions and in boardrooms where that's true north, and it tends to drive a lot of very good decisions, and if everyone knows what they're focused on. But if that social contract between companies and employees and customers and shareholders can evolve to be broader, I think you'll see pressure on that happening in the future. Yeah, and I mean, look at that social contract today. Let's take stock of that. Look what happened in the last presidential election without bringing politics into the discussion, just look at the amount of distrust of corporations, let's just leave it at that, is at an all-time high right now. And businesses licensed to operate is being eroded by the fact that we're overly focused on only shareholder value as a financial metric and not the total value that a business can create in society. And you're starting new companies today. How did you both come to determine it was time to get back in the game? Yeah, it's a little bit of torture, but I think what I personally loved about being an entrepreneur is that you go to work scared every day. And Method was no longer scary. We have such an incredibly talented team. The business is performing well, and it becomes comfortable. And I don't know, I'm just like wired to like want to be challenged. So for me, I just felt like it was time to start with a blank sheet of paper and do it again. And also like with your first startup, you make so many stupid mistakes. And we had so many near-death experiences and you know you can never have an ego because so much luck does play a role along the way and I wanted the opportunity to really kind of cash in on those mistakes and be able to do it a second time around with everything that we learned from the first time. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and for me, as I described before, I'm in business to make impact. And there comes a time when you've built a business of a reasonable size that's creating a lot of really amazing impacts where you start to think, okay, if my goal is to maximize the amount of impact that I make in my career, am I better off continuing to build this thing that's already doing some great stuff and will continue to do even more great stuff? Or is it time to go create something brand new that could be big? And that was a question that I was kind of tugging on and wrestling with for a couple of years before I made the decision to start Ripple Foods. In addition to that, there was also a factor of, I do love the early stages of a business and I'm having so much fun right now. It's fun building. So much fun. You move a mile every day, day, early stage. And I love not having to work with him anymore. (laughs) (laughs) It goes without saying. That's the best part. Um, So Greg, you work with a lot of founders like these guys. Not actually, there's no one like these guys. But um, so what what is it about founders? What is it about them that they want to keep going back and doing it all over again? I've had the great privilege of spending a bunch of my career around technology companies, biotechnology companies, and seeing a lot of great founders of great companies. And the common thread is passion. There's passion for the business, the idea, the vision, the dream, whatever it ends up being. I was talking to one of the entrepreneurs earlier today. He was in finance and his son was born with a rare disease and he quit his job on Wall Street and started the biotech company and he's now in FDA phase to try to get a drug that's going to cure his son's disease. I mean, that's, and so talk about passion for a business. I never thought I'd meet people with passion for household cleaning products. They're sustainable, right? (laughs) But it's, but it's, it's palpable. And so I think passion is number one. But then the second piece is building the right team. And so the passion can only take you so far. You need to surround yourself with people that can help you deliver because you can only scale one person or two people's brains and capability and work ethic so far. So you talked about Ripple Foods. It's a little different, but I can see a common strain. Feels like a new field, though, a new industry. Why was that particular industry attractive? Yeah, I mean, I hate to sound like a broken record, but impact. You look at where impacts are, they lie in our food system. 30% of humanity's carbon footprint is attributable to food. Huge amount of our water and waste is attributable to that as well. And it's much more personal, and it's much more impactful on our health. I won't go into broken food system, but we kind of all know that that's a really big issue. I also like going into places where I'm a little uncomfortable in terms of domain expertise. The joke about cleaning products, we are actually not passionate about cleaning products. (laughs) We don't take our work home with us that often. (laughs) Ask our wives, right. But the cleaning products were a vehicle to create a different type of business that we were really passionate about. And I am not particularly passionate about milk, but but, uh, I am really passionate about making food really delicious. Right now, we have a huge opportunity because the developed world is starting to realize maybe it's a little better or healthier for us to maybe not have a big piece of steak in the middle of our plate every day. What are we serving for dinner tonight? (laughs) (laughs) But plant-based foods generally taste really planty and organic, and they're not good. And if food isn't good, it's not going to get massively widely adopted. I'll actually tell a very quick story about the real origins of Ripple Foods. It's kind of fun. It was a conference much like this one, very close to here. About 10 years ago, I was sitting down with a friend of mine, Neil Renninger, who had started a company called Amaris. It's a renewable fuels and chemicals company. And we were having a drink, and I was telling him about how, man, I, I wish we had an owned technology that platform that we could just take and we could monetize in a lot of different ways. Because at Method, we always had to stay ahead with new products, new products, new products, right? And Neil was saying to me, he said, you know, I've got the greatest technology in the world, but I have to work through all of these other B2B partners to get them to market. And it's never as important to them as it is to me. Mm-hmm. And we sort of chink, you know, cleaned our glasses and just said, eh, whatever, grass is greener on the other side of the field. 
Well, he called me about three years ago, right about the time I was thinking about this, and he had a technology to make the purest plant protein anywhere in the world. And without going into the details, that is a real secret to being able to make healthy, delicious plant-based foods. And so this business, Ripple Foods, is really based off of a core set of technologies that we can kind of leverage in a bunch of places to actually make these natural foods much more delicious and palatable and, and nutritious for people. And so that's what got me really excited about it. And then as I dug into the category itself of non-dairy milks, non-dairy yogurts, there was also a lot of opportunity there. So your new business, Eric, is a little bit like method in the sense that you're bringing design and fun back into something that was traditionally kind of I'm a one boring. Trick, one and, trick pony. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> But if the trick works. So how is making people love taking their vitamins similar to making them enjoy cleaning? Yeah, so it was similar to method, and I like the idea of identifying the space before, as we kind of mentioned, and I was helping Target create this program called Made to Matter, which was a platform that ultimately both Ripple and Ollie were able to leverage as part of their launch. And we were identifying the brands that were for that, and we couldn't find a nutrition brand that we thought resonated the right way. And I just started spending time in that aisle and realized the insight was people were literally stressing out to choose something that was healthy for them. And it's a really confusing category. It's very hard to understand. And there's real questions around efficacy. So that was kind of the clue to dig here and figured out that nobody was kind of really building a brand around a millennial audience. And we found a lot of different ways to differentiate the product, make it easy to understand, letter everything up to benefits, really go after the categories where there's proven efficacy. And the way we brought it to life, and we ultimately partnered with Target to launch it there first to prove out the concept. And it resonated really fast, and we were off to the races. You've obviously gone to a distributor, to a retail store to sell it. Is that the only way you're thinking about bringing your product to market? or We do have a direct-to-consumer, but we've been really focused on the wholesale side. It took off for us fast, and part of it was just that experience. I mean, I love, you know, to your point, for me, like design is so powerful because it's immediate. You can quickly transform a category. And that aisle across all these different classes of trade are just so hard to shop and understand. The brands lack any sort of aspiration. And so being able to bring creativity and design to it on top of a really great efficacious formula and a new form approach allowed it to instantly resonate with consumers. And so it was an interesting choice because we're like, okay, in year one, we launched a target to get proof of concept for wholesale, and then we launched Ollie.com as a direct-to-consumer to understand that potential. The wholesale business took off immediately at retail. Direct-to-consumer was definitely working, and we're like, okay, we could either focus on the wholesale business, get the profitability faster, or we could raise a lot of capital, bleed red, and build a big direct-to-consumer business. But arguably, we'd be more valuable with the direct-to-consumer business, even though the P&L wouldn't be nearly as strong. And I, you I'm, went for the money. <laughs> it's nice going to bed every night and waking up in the morning with a cash flow positive business that's making money and not burning cash. And maybe coming off of the first startup from Method, I was like, I was just ready to have a PL that made sense. Mm-hmm. And I, of course, chose <laughs> the, the opposite only category lower margin than cleaning products. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, did you learn yeah. nothing? Yeah. So, so, Greg, I mean, a lot of companies face these choices now. Retail's evolving quickly. I mean, e commerce is still a pretty small slice of the pie, but it seems to be the future. How are companies thinking about this, particularly when it comes to these issues of scaling? That exact discussion that you had in your head is the trade off. People who have to pay the bills day to day like the cash flow. And it's the trade-off of where do you invest and where's growth? Because ultimately, 
the markets, both private and public, are going to value growth. And so people are trying to figure out, how can I grow? Ideally, how can I grow profitably? But it's a tricky balance. The beauty of where we are, both on the wholesale side and on the e-commerce side, is you've got infrastructure, electronic or otherwise, to scale your product quite quickly. So I think most people are focusing on the product, and they'll get the distribution right over time. So now you're in the food business. What surprised you most about that industry? The biggest thing that surprised me about the food industry is how there is literally no innovation in the food world. It's kind of amazing. If you look at companies that we think of as innovative today, now most of them are going to be in the tech sector and things like that and biotech and that sort of thing. They're spending 20% of revenue on R&D. The biggest food companies spend one. That's a label change budget. That's literally zero innovation with some packaging changes. Those businesses structurally cannot innovate. And so that's what we really kind of set out to change was, I mean, we're a very science-driven, very R&D-driven organization. We set out to kind of prove that, yeah, you actually can innovate in food and build a good business. So there are a lot of folks who are thinking about starting businesses. You've now started two successful ones. What advice would you give the young or not so young entrepreneur? A lot of people will talk about how, you know, you got to have grit and drive and determination and all the things that you hear. And those things are all true. But in an effort to maybe say something different or useful, I actually think that one of the things that's most important is openness. Like open mindedness is really critical because you see entrepreneurs that are really driven. Well, they're also very wedded to one vision. Yeah. And if you don't have flexibility, I mean, you might make it, but it's going to be more luck than skill, in my opinion. And I think that's a rare skill, openness and self-awareness to be able to say, I'm focused on the goal, but I know that the line between here and there may be a circuitous path and I might not be able to predict it. So I would say be open, if that makes sense. Eric, how about you? Well, be really careful of who you partner with. (laughs) (laughs) I love coaching entrepreneurs getting started because it's a great reminder of how hard it is and how far we've had the opportunity to come. You can always kind of see a little bit of the fear of the eyes of where they sit, of where they are, and where they want to get to be. And I always remind them just like breaking it down to the basic steps. And step one is do not worry about starting a company. Just focus on figuring out, do I have a good idea? And then once you've solved that, then you focus on still not starting a company, but how do I test out my idea by piloting it in some way? And then before you know it, you've started a company. Awesome. Thanks for joining us today, guys. Thanks Thanks for for having us. us. That concludes this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. I'm Jake Seward. Thanks for listening. This podcast was recorded on October 19th, 2017. The information contained in this recording was obtained from publicly available sources and has not been independently verified by Goldman Sachs. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this recording, and any liability as a result of this recording is expressly disclaimed. This recording should not be relied upon to evaluate any potential transaction. Goldman Sachs is not giving investment advice by means of this recording, and this recording does not establish a client relationship with Goldman Sachs.